Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff and I'm enjoying the summer. And I'm Michael Ralph, the father of two generally unsatisfied babies. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking a bunch of stuff, uh, but we will be highlighting the beer of the month later uh, when we feature a guest. So it doesn't matter what that was, which I'm glad because I like it, but it's not the best beer in the world. Uh, and it does not need our uh, endorsement either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I queued this uh, reading material several weeks ago and then like just dumped it from my working memory entirely. But as I got it back out to read it this month, I realized that it I, I keyed it because there's been a lot of conversation going on recently about um, diverse learners and students of different backgrounds and of different countries of origin and different cultures. And how do we serve all of those diverse needs in a classroom? Has it been something that we've discussed recently on a couple of um, recent episodes? And so this, this piece of literature focuses on meeting the needs of um, emergent bilinguals of students who are learning English and are already fluent in other languages and how our approach of a monolingual culture influences how we approach serving those students. And so I thought that was an important conversation to contribute to the general climate right now because considering how we meet all of the needs of all of our students is something that's going to be a concern for a while. Like that's not going away. That's going to matter for a while. It's uh, relevant to me personally because my high school recently became the English language learner magnet school of my district. So a lot of the programs that were located in other schools have been redirected and consolidated uh, at my school. The title of this article was, It's Not Really My Job, A Mixed Methods Framework for Language Ideologies, Monolingualism, and Teaching Emergent Bilingual Learners by Chris Bacon, published in the Journal of Teacher Education. Mm -hmm. And so he focused on uh, the state of Massachusetts because they are requiring an SEI, a Sheltered English Immersion Endorsement, uh, basically as an attempt to address some of the shortcomings of uh, the system to serve emergent bilinguals. I really liked that term that they used. That's a, I, I took it to be more or less synonymous with ELL, English Language Learners. I know there are several other acronyms out there that we might throw out, uh, but basically we're talking about students who speak one language and are learning English as a part of their coursework in our U.S. public education system. And so this study was looking at Massachusetts, which is requiring this certification for teachers to try and better serve those um, emergent bilinguals and its efficacy. So how well is that system addressing the need? So in 2011, the U.S. Department of Justice held Massachusetts in violation of the Equal Education Opportunities Act. Um, and that's not because in 2002 they had banned bilingual education, but because they felt like they ruled that they were not mandating adequate training. And so to try to uh, address that court instruction, they created this uh, sheltered English immersion certification that was going to be required for their teachers to teach in the state of Massachusetts. So a couple, of, I think it was just last year, they repealed that law that was forbidding bilingual education. Which puts Massachusetts in a really weird place. So if you're an educator and you're going to teach in Massachusetts, well, it's been illegal to teach 
in a language other than English since 2002, and then the government tells you you're not preparing your teachers. Well, why would you prepare your teachers for something that's illegal anyway? So then they repealed that ban so that the federal mandate actually had meant something in the state. Mm -hmm. So now they are teaching their their pre-service teachers to be endorsed in meeting the needs of emergent bilingual yeah. students. So then the question becomes, our, our purpose is not to require all teachers to become bilingual and trilingual. We're not, we're not mandating that teachers become fluent in other languages, but how effective is this certification in helping teachers better serve these emergent bilinguals? So the stuff that they're asking them to do, how does it actually influence their classroom practice and ultimately how does it serve their students? Uh, that was the question. What was interesting and impressive to me about the design of this study was that it was segmented into three phases and the information that they got from the first phase influenced the design of the second, which influenced the design of the third. Very quickly, phase one was asking all of the, the pre-service teachers in the program to write a reflection piece about their experiences with language. Then those writings were analyzed to write a survey uh, with a one through five scale, agree, disagree type of scale about three specific components. Those That was the teacher's pedagogical confidence with bilingual instruction, their agency with bilingual instruction, and recognition of the language resources of those students. And then finally, they used the mm -hmm. results of their surveys to formulate a prompt that was then given to these teachers when they were working with students after their course. Uh, so what I liked about this was that Dr. Bacon began at a place where I like to also begin when I'm designing my own, my own work in the classroom. And that's asking, how do people see themselves? So what, who are you as a learner? Who are you as a teacher? Because you're both of those things. And so those autobiographical um, pieces of writing that he analyzed to begin with uh, started to try and lay out how do we define ourselves as language users? And he found some patterns in there that really shaped the way that we approach our classroom design. So when he was analyzing those first uh, language autobiographies. He found that many teachers communicated contrition for being monolingual. They felt that that was a deficit um, in themselves. Uh, though they did not communicate necessarily any intent to change that fact. So you can be sorry about something without ever investing in the opportunities to change it. And that was sort of a discrepancy that he saw that was communicated. He also saw that some teachers identified with their students in manners that may not have necessarily been appropriate. Uh, some, some teachers communicated experiences where they would travel abroad or live away for two or three years and they would immerse themselves in a language and they would learn it and they would compare themselves to their students. But he, rec he, he noted that this fails to recognize that there's a big difference between choosing to go and relocate yourself and immerse and learn a language uh, rather than having this be an emergent consequence of your life, being transplanted to a place where now no one speaks your language through no choice of your own, and then have it being integrated, compelled upon you on a daily basis, mm -hmm. uh, and that those differences also weren't acknowledged. Mm -hmm. So I think the theme of those autobiographies is that we need to examine as teachers how we might be blind to some differences in the way we view our own practice and our own sense of being versus how we expect our students to be. So if 
I'm viewing that I am monolingual and that's just something that maybe it's not great about me, but that just is the way that it is. And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to talk to a student who is trying to learn my language and I'm going to talk to them about how they need to, they need to deal with it and they need to work through it and they need to learn that other language and they can totally do it. Uh, that there's some, there's some incongruence of those two sentences. And so some of that, uh, I want to say hypocrisy, some of that, some of that mismatch can undermine some of the work that we're trying to do, even when it is um, with the best intent. And the same is true of envisioning uh, those of us who have become bilingual. We did it by choice versus it, they pointed out in the paper that these many students who are emergent bilinguals view their fluency and their, their usage of their original primary language as a part of their cultural identity and their eth ethnic heritage as they should yeah and so that is different like i am learning english despite the fact that i identify with my primary language which is different from how teachers may view becoming bilingual in another language through choice and through study and as a part of who they already are and that mismatch that disconnect needs to be identified and needs to be clear needs to be navigated for those of us that are monolinguist teacher, that just that means more than just we know one language. That mm -hmm. means that we see the world with some biases mm -hmm. from a mono, monolinguist yeah. perspective. If I self-identify as being monolingual, that is different from what I'm asking my students to do. Yeah. Shall we go to phase uh, two? Phase two, because phase two is my favorite because quantitative is better than qualitative. It just <laughs> sure is. So, so well, that's <laughs> is that measured? Have you measured? That? Oh, I sure have. Yeah. Oh, it. is that right? <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> that was good. Because uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it did some weird stuff, like the the quantitative survey stuff. So like, yeah. So tell me about the uh, phase like, two. Yeah, when I first when I well when I first um, looked at how he went about collecting data, I had my knee jerk reaction of this is all self report. But then I'm like, he's studying what we think about ourselves, so self report's actually totally appropriate. Like, okay, I got it. That makes sense. Uh, and so then using these surveys. Uh, some of his mean movement was was counterintuitive and I think actionable. What were the particular variables that did weird stuff? The survey I the survey had I think twenty three questions on it, and then he grouped those questions to give him influence about or information about the pedagogical confidence of the teacher, the perceived agency of the teacher, and the language resource validation that the teacher had for the students. What I, you know, in, in, in my reading of it, teachers did report a, a greater understanding of methods that they could use, but that did not appear to affect their confidence level about working with emerging bilingual students. Mm -hmm. The flavor of what I got from seeing these, these mean movements was uh, if... Because I also have to make some assumptions about the about the program they were in because there, there, there is a lot about the program that we didn't know. But I got the sense that... As teachers were exposed to lots of things they could do, here's a task or here's a strategy, or here's another thing to think about, they got the sense that there was just more to do, more to do. And so they seemed to report, yes, I, I understand how I could do these things, but I don't see how I could do all those things while still doing everything else I do the same way that I do it. And so I get the sense of as they became more familiar with what with things they could be doing, they became less sure they could actually do them. Um, because we were just we were just adding more to what they viewed to what they viewed needed to be happening in their classroom. This kind of uh, dovetails with what they found for agencies. Uh, teachers tend to philosophically agree that they are language teachers, 
but they did not mechanistically agree that they were all language teachers. Mm -hmm. I should be addressing language in my classroom, but how I should do that is different or harder because my classroom is a different classroom than that other subject. Uh, Teachers perceive their agency decreased after the English methods course uh, the sheltered English methods course, as they believed that they should be, they should engage in supportive practices, but did not report the ability to do so. Mm-hmm. There was some conflict in that too. Some teachers wrote uh, specifically, um, "Well, I don't really do any of these things because we have specialists in the building that are language language learner specialists, and it's sort of their responsibility, so I leave it to them." While there were others that responded, "Well, in my building, we don't have any English language learner specialists, so I don't really have the support I need in order to do it in my classroom." Mm-hmm. So it it seems that regarding agency, there was always a reason to communicate that it was not possible to enact these philosophical goals in their classroom, which to me is sad. Yeah, and hence where the title comes from, this uh, this is not my job. And so it it was again associated with the more they knew, the more in the the post-assessment surveys, there was a decrease in agreement that they had time to support emergent bilinguals. So the more uh, the more of this training they got, the less sure they could actually do any of this support. And so I agree, it's sad. What do we do about it? Honestly, that's a teacher prep program nightmare, is what that is. You can teach them what to do and why to do it, and that does not mean they'll do it. Well, I think there are two things in there that can be addressed. And again, we, we don't know the specifics of the of the curriculum that was being used in Massachusetts to do this, but a solution that I can't use is not a solution. So. Right. So I recommendation number one and the thing that I will seek to do in my teacher preparation program where I work is seek solutions that they can actually implement. And that's, of course, a moving target. And that's, of course, different answers to different uh, pre-service teachers. Uh, But if all of our graduates are coming out saying, yes, that's a solution, but I can't use it, then I've got to find a different solution to offer them. I don't know if it's offering them something that is suboptimal, whether they can actually use and that might grow eventually into something that's uh, closer to best practice as they mature as teachers. Or I don't know if that's something that's finding a way to convince them that they can actually use the solutions I'm offering them. But in either case, a solution not used is not a solution. I think the bigger takeaway for this is actually in phase three, because those filters, I think, are the answer. But I think because there's a lot of overlap in the um, the third phase, the filters discussion. So the school culture and the school support systems are having this heavy influence on what teachers believe they can do. In the third phase, uh, after reading the teachers' reflections of their work in the field regarding this issue, Uh, They identified what they called filters. I like to use the term institutional constraints, but they were using the term filters that kind of uh, are impediments to effective practice, um, or at least meeting the needs of these students. I guess the question is, what is effective practice is kind of in the air with this issue for this paper, but what are the needs of the students and how can we meet them? And one of those was um, about policy interpretation. If we are teaching in an environment that, ha- you know, re- just very recently mandated that teaching had to be in English. Clearly, we have a priority in one language. So uh, why are we even like, why are we even investing in something that is not a cultural priority? That was one of the impediments. So I suppose in both situations, 
lip service to doing something is not the same thing as a cultural support for doing something. So in the third phase, again, they were collecting open-ended teacher reflections. And so uh, that teacher wrote in their reflection, I don't really get how an SEI endorsement course is useful because it's so geared toward teaching ELA or writing. If you're teaching math, it just doesn't seem very helpful. Maybe if I were teaching English, I'd be more engaged. But for a lot of it, I don't feel like I can get really use the strategies. Uh, and this is from a seventh grade math teacher. This made me sad. They used that as an example to illustrate that there was a perceived discrepancy between applying these language methods across content and that that's a major factor preventing a lot of teachers from employing linguistically responsive practice. To me, that, that's a failure to understand some of the more complex implications of Vygotsky's social learning theory work. There's some core ideas here. Language is thought. Language is thought. And when you are teaching math, you are teaching language. You are doing that. And it may not have the same syntax as prose, but you are teaching language. And so allowing students the opportunity to access those thoughts in other formats via written English prose or written Spanish prose or whatever the home language is or diagrams or pictures or pictographs or literal graphs or charts, data tables, math can be communicated in all of those formats because math is thought, math is language. And restricting yourself to just the language of numbers and operators is a monolinguistic approach to math. And it's, it's, it's faulty. Yeah. And I think I'd even point out that if we're talking about being, res being responsive in how we handle language in our classroom, being aware of all the different ways I can approach making something accessible to somebody with a different perspective toward language than I have can be more than translating directly into another language. So if I have three or four different ways to say things that use words that are cognates for words in Spanish, or if I know how to rearrange my statement to make it the syntax that looks like the syntax of Spanish, even though I'm using English words, you can remove some of the barriers to understanding what I'm saying, despite the fact that I maybe don't speak Spanish. And so there's a lot of things we can do that aren't just translate into other languages. There's a lot of things, if you think about the implications of how I look at the world and how what I the way I look at the world is different than how somebody else who's coming to English after having learned another language uh, looks at the world, that, that that can be really revolutionary in how you can make something accessible. So just so it's more than just translating syntax and word choice and the particular language, the particular cultural implications of the words that I'm using. So if I'm trying to use a, an idiom that doesn't have a translation in Spanish, maybe I need to find a different idiom to use that's actually present in that culture. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways that you can make something accessible once you start to try to look past the limits of my single language experience. This take-home message that we must expand our socio-cultural perspectives is really resonant because it doesn't really stop at emergent bilingual students. As a teacher, as someone, is, as someone whose job is to inspire cognitive change in the development of other people, I need to be sensitive and aware and responsive to their social-cultural 
uh, experiences and perspectives, which means I have a lot of work to do to, uh, as uh, Shannon Ralph said in a, a prior episode, know your students. I have a lot of work to do to know my students. Mm -hmm. So it's not a box to check so that I can make sure that I use Google Translate to translate my my writing prompts on my worksheet into Spanish and then I'm done. That's that that's just not enough. So spending the time to get outside of my own box, understand what are the specific uh, experiences my students are having with what I'm creating in the classroom is an ongoing process. And it really dovetails well with the papers that we read from Ornit and Specter Levy. It dovetails really well with what they were describing with some of what we saw with meeting the needs of uh, students with language disabilities and language uh, learning barriers is we have to build a school culture where we think more about everybody's experience, not just what are the emergent bilingual students experiencing in my classroom despite whatever cultural background they may have but what is the experience of the monolingual students who have only a single experience in my classroom and beyond that what is my language experience and how I'm using language and what that says to my students about what's important and how they should be experiencing my content. Now we do other stuff. For our second segment, we are uh, reading a listener-suggested piece. Who was that listener? Do we know? Uh, this is from Aaron Matthew. He, he oh, sent yeah. this along to us. He was right. our guest last month. Well, um, Paul Strode shared it, I think, with him on one of the social media communities. And Aaron was like, hey, this sounds like something that Woodruff and Ralph would like. And so he sent it along to us. He is right. It is something that I like. I like it a lot. Uh, this was called Defining Sensemaking, Bringing Clarity to a Fragmented Theoretical Construct uh, by Odin and Russ. Maybe that's Odin. I don't know. I, don't, I also don't know. I'm like, but I'm like an Odin. I'm like an Odin for this. Uh, so the upshot of this paper was trying to get some sort of working framework to describe what sense-making is and to distinguish it from some of the other similar cognitive processes that are relevant to us as teachers so that we could better support sense-making when it needs to be happening in the classroom. Yeah, uh, this paper was really fun to read because I agreed with pretty much everything that I read and that that's consistent with, with prior research and that's consistent with prior research and that's consistent with prior research basically because this was a synthesis paper that was all about integrating prior research. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us have been saying a lot of the same things for a long time about you know the process of what they use as the term sense-making. And the term sense-making is becoming more and more used in education research. They said that it had been used about 250 times in the last 10 years, while the 10 years before that it had only been used 50 times. So um, it's, it's becoming a buzzword, or at least in a research level, it is becoming more prevalent. So if we're going to make this a word that we use, we better know what it means. And that's kind of the premise of this article. What does it mean uh, to use the term sense-making in an educational capacity. So they give a definition of sense-making. I'm actually reading from close to the end of the paper, but they do clarify exactly what they're defining it to mean, and I liked it. Uh, so they're saying, are students trying to build an explanation, so they're trying to figure something out, are they also critiquing that explanation as they build it? So I think this might be true, but is that right? Is that consistent with all these observations? What details can I see? And it, does that make sense with this explanation that I think I might have? And then are they constructing new knowledge 
based on their existing schema and how that comes to bear on this new explanation that they're building and critiquing as they construct. Those three things all need to be happening if a student is going to be doing sense making. Are they trying to explain something? Are they critiquing it as they build that explanation explicitly? And are they bringing to bear prior knowledge? Those three things make up sense making. This paper uh, does a really good job of kind of illustrating that we've been talking about this in education for a long, long time. They give us two examples, two narratives, one published by Dewey himself in the early 1900s, and another published fairly recently uh, where they reference a, a paper by Hutchison and Hammer. And really, they were just these two narratives. One is a, a personal reflection, and the other is a uh, transcript of some classroom exchanges. Both of them show uh, students undergoing the process where, or, or an individual or a thinker is undergoing the process where they edit and revise and improve their own ideas to reduce a conflict between prior knowledges, prior knowledge and their observations. That's what, how I, what I took away is sense making. And the reason why I took away is the definition, despite whatever they said is their formal definition, because I've been using the terms edit, revise, and improve to reduce the conflict between prior knowledge and observations in my classroom directly with my students for a long time. That's like, we're here to do this. And so the fact that they write a paper about the importance of doing that makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. And so the... This paper directs a lot of its pros towards researchers who may be doing future work on sense making, but the end of their paper really highlights that it has value to us as classroom teachers. And so uh, this was published in Science Education, but if you are not a science listener, they explicitly describe why this is relevant to other teachers who may work in other disciplines because they said this value in their value of defining sense making this clearly and this articulately is twofold. Number one, if we have a clear definition, we can see how it runs parallel to sense making in other disciplines because it's not the same thing. Making sense of something in science is not the same thing as sense making in English or social studies, but they do run together. They have a lot of things in common. And so if we have clear definitions of those, then we can start to align our practices with what students are experiencing in other classrooms so that we can see combined benefits that are greater than the sum of those parts. Secondly, a precise definition of sense-making allows us to define what it is not, to differentiate sense-making from other cognitive processes that are really closely related but are not the same thing. So how is sense-making different than thinking, different than learning, different than planning? How is it different from some of the other things that might look similar but are meaningfully different? Uh, and those have pedagogical implications. One of the things that uh, I, I uh, appreciated was... Uh, the difference between sense-making and uh, answer-making. And that uh, this is something that I personally in my practice have to navigate because um, individuals can provide a right answer without understanding what it is. They know when, when we get this cue, we give this response, that's it. I don't have to know what that response is. And if your assessments are at a surface level assessment, you might fool yourself into thinking your kids understand something that they don't. And that students also know the difference between sense-making behaviors and answer-making behaviors. Um, when students are engaged in sense-making, 
uh, they are trying to create a new explanation for something that is unknown to them or is not understood by them. Whereas in answer-making uh, behaviors, they are attempting to uh, ring the bell, get the nod, uh, impress the teacher, and then move on. And uh, another indicator of that is that oftentimes in sense-making, students are not consulting an outside knowledge authority in the process. Whereas in answer-making, they will often directly go to an outside authority uh, to find that answer. So when students are saying, hey, what's the answer to four? That's clearly answer-making behavior. Whereas students say, how did you answer number four? Like, what did you do to get that answer? That is a different process. That student is trying to understand how to go from their lack of understanding to a point of understanding. And that's very different. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate they even gave an example. So I love this is not the first paper we've read from this journal that they give those little vignettes at the beginning of the paper as like an example. It's awesome. It's super cool. So they link it back to that vignette at the beginning where they describe a student who's trying to give give explanations of this momentum problem. And the student said, gives a correct answer, but then says, this still feels like it just doesn't quite make sense. And so it can be tempting to say, well, you got the right answer. It does make sense. Move on. Um, but that would be neglecting an opportunity for that student to engage in sense-making. I have this answer. It's not yet fitting well within my existing schema and I am critically engaged in that process why does this not fit well in my existing schema and that's really prime excellent learning time if we can support that student in engaging in the sense-making process so Ralph set it up already that the teacher gave a lesson the bell rang the students were leaving the class and one student came to the teacher and said I didn't understand it uh, here is the rest of that, uh, the ending of this passage. Mrs. J was flummoxed. What did Marco mean when he said it just doesn't make sense? She had quite clearly shown him that it was true, complete with the equations of motion, clear diagrams of the forces at work, and even graphs of actual measured forces from real collisions. She patiently pulled up her notes on the subject and walked the student through the argument again. But by the end of the interaction, he still seemed unsatisfied. Mrs. J, too, felt frustrated. She didn't quite understand what didn't make sense to Marco, nor did she understand how to help him. There's two things that are really important about this passage. One, this is not a universally strange experience. But it comes from the idea that by telling students thing, things in a coherent, clean fashion, that they're going to get it. And that is not how we learn. It's not how we make sense. It's not how we understand. We make our own observations and we come into the classroom with our own conclusions and our own understanding of how things work. And when things don't fit, we have to struggle to explain them or we reject them. And this student was at that pivot point and he was asking for more support and she gave him the experience that she had gave him again. That was not enough. And number two, one statement in this passage, Mrs. J too felt frustrated. She didn't quite understand what didn't make sense to Marco, nor did she understand how to help him. If she did not understand what did not make sense to Marco, I think she should have asked him what, what does make sense. If she is going to create an experience where he has to 
put things together in a way to explain something or to improve his explanation, she needs to make him aware of observations and experiences that challenge his current understanding. And since she doesn't actually know what his understanding is, she wasn't able to help him. She needed to ask him, you're right, this is an inconsistency from our current observations, so what should it be? How does it, like, what is it that makes sense to you? And can, let's make some comparisons. Let's start drawing some conclusions and making some comparisons. She can't do that without knowing what he's thinking. And that is really the heart of responsive teaching. She can't go forward in her practice until she asks him to explain to her how it works. When, when he does that, she can then start analyzing his ideas and deciding how to proceed. This is better with all of you. So our last segment is the peer review, and this month we've got Kelly Cluthy joining us, and she is bringing a beer for us to try. Uh, Kelly Cluthy just finished her sixth year teaching, her first at Olathe West High School. She teaches college biology, freshman biology, and now AP biology. She also coaches Science Olympiad and leads herpetology field trips. And further, she is the secretary for the KBT board and OBT award director. Uh, welcome, Kelly Cluthy. Tell us about the beer that we're going to be drinking. Hi, so I have got Crooked Stave Serenata Naturna, I think that's how you pronounce it at least, which is a Belgian-style golden sour ale aged in single rye whiskey barrels. Ooh. We love barrel age. <laughs> oh, we man. have not done anything even remotely like a sour on Oh, that. man. And I am nervous about sours, but I am, feel great about whiskey barrel aged. So let's do this. Yeah. yeah. Pop it open. Let's do it. All right. I have not had this particular beer yet. Yeah. Yeah, that'll come through. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Boom. <laughs> Awesome, Kelly. So you are you are a graduate of the program from which I came as well. So we've known each other for a few years by this point uh, at a professional level. I'm really excited to get to hear about things that go on in your classroom. So what are you here to tell us about? Oh, so this is something that I have struggled with a lot the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, about I guess three or four years ago at this point, I started what I call the gradeless classroom, which was prompted by some reading I did with Paul Strode and a couple other English teachers that were currently in my building at Wyandotte High School where I worked. Um, the idea was that I did not write any sort of grades on student assessments or assignments. Um, instead, I gave students feedback on what they did really well on and what they struggled with. And then we used a scale developed for the unit to figure out where the students fell. So. We were a Marzano district at the time, so Marzano follows a zero to four scale, um, where three being at standard. So I'd sit down with each student individually, and we would talk about where they felt like they were on that scale. That's it. That's interesting that uh, you attribute that to being a Marzano school because that's that's really well aligned to what uh, Wormley described in in the work that we read last last month. Marzano, I don't know if he developed these scales or what, um, is something that was expected for every teacher within the district at the time at KCK. I did like using the scales. I don't know if I really necessarily agreed with a three out of four being at standard. I had some problems with that. Tell uh, us about those problems. <laughs> I feel like if you have met the standards, then that should be 
the highest possible grade you can receive. Okay, right? how did how was a three interpreted? Uh, were there letter? I presume there were letter grades eventually, right? Right. So we still use the more traditional grading scale when it came to report cards. So um, it's kind of up to the teachers how we arrived at those grades. For me, it was sitting down with the students individually and having conferences. Um, students kept portfolios throughout the school year, so we'd look at their uh, work that they did throughout the semester, and we'd also look at kind of what they scored on each unit, and we discussed uh, what grade they thought should go on their report card. So, so, so in your classroom, maybe mm -hmm. um, a student earning a three is on level. Did you award them? Like, did they earn an A in your classroom if they had a three? I did, yes. Um, <clears throat> I like that. <laughs> to me, a four being an A was just, I don't know, that didn't make a ton of sense. Um, if, if they are meeting the standards, especially NGSS, which the standards are very in-depth, there's a lot to them. Oh, I yes. think, yes. I think going above what NGSS is asking students to do just seemed a little ridiculous. I mean, and giving, <laughs> giving students feedback that tells them you are progressing beyond the expectations of mastery of this class is useful to that student as right. far as considering future coursework, right. considering enrichment work, and just generally giving good feedback. Like, I think there's a lot of value in yes. offering students a four versus a three, and I'm still with you of like, it's the same grade. It is the same grade because you have done the things I've asked in both of those levels. Yeah. Uh, so I get that that might, I get that that comes across weird, but I think I would do what you did. Mm-hmm. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I love she wins it. the competition. Yeah, like yeah. In, the, yeah. in the in the in the in the, the, in the OE department. Oh man, gosh, that sounds so fantastic. The fact there's so many good things going on there. One, during the learning cycle, you are giving them feedback. You were not perseverating on points or what do I have to do? Mm -hmm. You diminish answer seeking behavior. You encourage sense making behavior. It is so rewarding you're developing a relationship because it is personal about the feedback that you are giving them it's not a number it's not a letter it's not a symbol it's a dialogue mm -hmm. so many good things about that um the fact that you identified this as important enough that you're going to use time to have conversations with students one-on-one -on -one, i mean that's complex you got to juggle that somehow you got to mm -hmm. make that work and you are making that a priority i love that about this story i also uh, love that you know we we live in a world where we're gonna have to give them a letter grade eventually and that letter grade is not based on means average math determination yeah, she doesn't average I didn't even realize that you didn't average grades <laughs> that yep. she's doing it based on a holistic understanding of the communication of what they have mastery of um, as determined by her judgments of their their communication of the standards so it is I mean, it is the best description of anyone <laughs> actually doing the things that I think should be done. So, <laughs> high five. That's All a right. great story. <laughs> uh, but the story's not over yet, right? right. So, so you framed this as, uh, there's a change, right? Yes. There's, there's a change when you move. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell us about what now? So when I started the system, there weren't any points, there were no scores or of any kind in my grade book except for what the students um, performed on that scale, but that did not translate to a percentage or anything. So if a student looked in the grade book, they would not see like an 85% or anything like that. It would just be a record of what they got on each unit as a one, two, four. Um, however, that the world we live in is a little bit different in Olathe, especially when it comes to parents and it comes to sports. 
Um, I ran into problems with coaches, with students needing to have certain grades in uh, class to be able to compete. So not seeing anything in the grade book was not something that a lot of people in the building were comfortable with. I still maintain that it's not unreasonable for parents to want to have updated information mm -hmm. about student progress. Like that's not, philosophically, that's fine. Like stakeholders should know how their students are doing, that's fine. A common refrain that came up with some, co with some colleagues has been, uh, ask your student. Mm -hmm. But it's still fine to want some other external, external measure. Uh, so navigating how do I put in weekly feedback without getting bound up in the knot of having these points that are then their own purpose. Like, you know, it's great that coaches want to promote accountability, but then when the proxy becomes its own purpose, so when the accountability is driving the thing it's supposed to be supporting in the first place, you have a problem, right? You're upside, right. Oh, you're upside down. So, uh, so what have you been doing to navigate that problem? Um, this last year, I had been asked to give some sort of percentage to the um, the grade I give students. So I've kind of abandoned the, the zero to four scale. Instead, I'm just zero to three now. I completely got rid of the four. So three to me is you're at standard. Two is you're approaching. One is you need some serious revision. And then zero would just be no attempt. Um, so this last year, I was asked to tie percentages to those numbers. So a three went in my grade book as 100%, a two went in as an 80, one went in as a 60, and a zero was a 50%. I'd like to make some comparisons between her experience yeah. and my, compare, my experience. One, um, you kind of got the feedback that, hey, you should take shortcuts to save yourself from trouble from other teachers and other parents. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never been given that particular um, Bit of advice and that's so my grade book has never looked as divergent as yours have it, it has looked kind of really you got a whole semester and you only have three grades in the grade book yeah because those three grades represent their developing understanding of these concepts that are critical mm -hmm. core assessments over the course of the semester so yeah the the grades change those three grades change constantly but they are the, those are the critical things so you know i've had a, a little bit of like really what's going on with your grade book i've had some of that but i haven't had the you should change your grade book so that you can get along with others. Yeah. I can get away with more flexibility in my grade book because there are other teachers that are doing weird things in their grade book mm -hmm. in my school. So we already have, by that time to get to me as a junior or a senior in college biology, they've had one or two weird teachers that did weird things. And yeah, we're still the weird ones, but we're not the only weird yeah. one. And when you're the only weird one, you stand out and it's you versus the world. So I kind of get to blend in a little bit of herd quality where I'm at that you don't have that benefit from. Right. So that some of that's related to your recent move to the school, right? Right. So. And I was mostly freshman this year too. So I think there was a little bit of hesitation just from admin, like, oh my goodness, we're opening this brand new building and we're trying all these new things. And, and then like, as you were saying, like these kids, Four out of the five sections I was teaching were freshman classes, so these parents have not had a lot of, um, I guess, Divergent. opportunities to have different experiences when it comes to grading like that. I love your grading principles, so I want to go out <laughs> on saying you are demanding mastery of your students and providing opportunities to give them feedback and obtain feedback from them to pursue greater competencies, and so for that, yeah. Uh, Lawrence, get weirder. You could yeah. go weirder. <laughs> I could do it. It's been done. <laughs>
how's the beer? It's funky. It's so much more sour than the other sour I've had. It really? is crazy sour. You need to have some cream sours then. Those will actually make you pucker. Uh, yeah, and this one's <laughs> making me pucker. Um, I don't hate it, but it is super sour. <laughs> I can tell that it's super sour, and I'm going to be honest, I do not like the sour, but I will admit that the APV cuts that sour. So if this were a 6% APV sour, I would say I don't think I want this. But since I can actually taste the alcohol, my brain says, go for it, man. Just, just do it. So Kelly, this is one of your favorites, so tell us about how you experienced this beer. Um, so this is actually my first time drinking this particular beer, but Crooked Stave... Sours are amongst your favorites. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, okay, and Crooked Stave is probably my favorite brewery. Um, they're based in Denver, so whenever I'm in town, I have to go and get some of their beer. Uh, this is something that a friend brought back to me uh, when he was recently in Denver, so... I know we've had several science-centric citations recently. We read the things that you all suggest. So send us some other things. Where's, where are my English teachers, my social studies teachers, my performing arts teachers? Let's mix it up. So remember, we listen to the things that you send. So send us things you want to you want to hear about. Otherwise, remember, you can subscribe to us. Google Podcast app is excellent. That's a brand new one. So totally subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and discuss research. Struggle well. Always a learner.